Sometimes getting what you ask for is the worst thing that could happen to you. So, for example, I went to an Indian restaurant many years ago now and I asked them for their hottest curry. Now, I was a young country boy, grew up in Griffith. We didn't have Indian restaurants there. Just moved to Sydney, wanted to try some real Indian food. So we went to the North Indian Diner in Newtown. An Indian man came to take our order. I thought, oh, this looks really authentic. He said, I said, what's your hottest curry? He said, oh, that would be the beef vindaloo. I thought, that sounds great. I looked it up on the menu. They had a chilli rating system from one chilli to five chilies, and the beef vindaloo was five chilies. Young 19-year-old punk, I thought, five chilies? That doesn't sound very hot. I said to the fellow, can you make it hotter than five? He said, no, 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 no. You do not want more than five chilies. Five chilies will be too hot. I said, no, I want it really hot. I want it as hot as you can make it. Eventually, he agreed. It came out. One mouthful, it had ripped the skin off my throat. My face was red. I was uh, pouring sweat off me. I tried. I really tried to eat it, especially in front of all my friends who'd seen me order it and seen me brag. I couldn't. It nearly killed me. Yes, it's worse on the way out than the way, the way in. <laughs> I was in pain. Sometimes getting what you ask for is the worst thing that could happen for you. Similar um, lesson is happening to the nation of Israel in the Bible today. In 1 Samuel 8, they come to God And they ask him for something that actually means they're rejecting God as their king. And God warns them that it won't be good for them. He warns them of the consequences, but they don't listen. He gives them exactly what they ask for. And we're going to see that it is a warning for us. It is a warning for us not to reject Jesus as our king. But firstly, let's look at the warning to Israel in 1 Samuel 8. You can see it on your outline there. We're firstly going to look at what it is that they asked for because they didn't just say, God, we want to reject you as our king. They were asking for something else that on the surface looks okay. So we're going to look at what it was that they wanted and then we're going to look at what was the problem with what they were asking for. So let's jump right in there at verse 4 of 1 Samuel 8. Verse 4. Israel asked God to give them a king. 1 Samuel 8, 4. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. We read a bit earlier that they'd, they, they, had, uh, they were corrupt. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. What's interesting here is there's actually nothing wrong on the surface with what they ask. There's nothing wrong with the nation of Israel having a king. We know that because God has already told the nation of Israel that he wants them to have a king. And if we were reading through the Bible from Genesis to here, we would know that. So way back in Genesis 49, you might want to write it down and look it up later. Genesis 49 verse 10, right at the start of the nation of Israel, God promised that a king would come from the tribe of Judah. That's one of the tribes of Israel. Way back in Genesis 49, the first book of the Bible. And that wasn't just a one-off promise. 
So hundreds of years later, just before they entered the promised land, back in the book of Deuteronomy, God gave them instructions about how to live. That's when he, got, uh, when he repeated the Ten Commandments and so on. But within those instructions were instructions about a king. Again, you might want to look this up later. Write it down, Deuteronomy 17, verse 14. Deuteronomy 17, verse 14. But let me just read a little bit to you and listen how God is giving them instructions on what kind of a king they should have. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, and have taken possession of it and settled in it. By the way, that's all happened by the book of um, Samuel. And you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us. Be sure to appoint over you the king the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your own brothers. When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he's to write for himself on a scroll a copy of the law. And so on. There's detailed instructions about what kind of king they should have. Even closer, though, to the events that we're looking at today, if you can remember back earlier in the year when we looked at 1 Samuel uh, chapter 2, when Samuel was conceived, when Hannah became pregnant, God promised there that there was a king coming. Okay, that's just only seven chapters ago in the Bible. So Israel are expecting to have a king, and it's a good thing for them to have a king. So what's the problem with what they're asking for? Because there is a problem, as we read on in the rest of the chapter and the rest of the book of 1 Samuel. The problem's not with what Israel asked for. The problem is with their motives for asking. The problem isn't that they want a king. The problem is that they want a king as a replacement for God. And we see that in verse 6 and 7. Have a look at verse 6. We actually, God shows us what's going on in their hearts. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord and the Lord told him, listen to all the people are saying to you, it is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. Now, verse 7 is very important. God's saying, Samuel, it's not you they've rejected. In other words, this is not about the nation of Israel moving from having a judge like you to having a king. No, it's not about the going from judge to king. What it is, is they are looking for a way to get rid of God, me, as their king. They think that if they have a king, they don't need to rely on God anymore. Now, can you remember the cycle that Israel are in from the book of Judges? There's other nations around and they have kings. You know, that's what Israel want. We want a, a king like the other nations. Back in chapter 3 of Judges, there was Eglon, the king of Moab. He was the guy who got... Um, stabbed, remember. There was um, Jaban, the king of Canaan, in Judges 4 and so on. But there's this cycle in kings where things are going well for Israel, but then they reject God as king and they walk away from him. And God hands them over to that. And quite often what he does is he raises up a foreign king to judge them, to, to invade. And when things are right rock bottom going bad, Israel get on their knees mostly and they cry out to God and they ask him, for help. And then God raises up a judge to save them. And then things go well again. But when the judge dies, what do Israel do? They turn their back on God and things go downhill again. God, God sends foreign nation to invade them. When things are bad, they cry out to God for help. They turn back to God. 
God raises up a judge, and so the cycle goes. And you can imagine Israel are probably getting pretty sick of this cycle of being invaded all the time and having to call on God. So this seems to be they want to short-circuit that somehow. Now, the obvious and best way to do that would be when things are going well, don't turn your back on God. Keep obeying him, keep following him, you'll live long in the land like he promised. But no, they turn their back on God and they're trying to short-circuit the cycle at the bottom where they have to cry out to God for sa- to save them. Wouldn't it be better if they didn't have to cry out for God? Wouldn't it be better if they could just rescue themselves? So they want a king. They want a king to lead them into battle so whenever there's a threat, they can just wheel their king out into battle and they won't need God. If they have a king, they won't have to ask God to rescue them any time. It's a bit like the Ark of the Covenant all over again. Do you remember in 1 Samuel 4, they wanted to wheel the Ark of the Covenant out into battle and that would assure them of their victory and kind of like a lucky charm. They could control God. Now they want a king who they can march out before them into battle like the other nations. Point is, the problem is not that they're asking for a king. The problem is that they're asking for a king like the other nations, who can lead them into battle without any regard to God or any dependence on him. They want God out of the equation. Verse 7, listen to all the people are saying to you, it's not you they have rejected, they have rejected me as their king. So God sees straight through it. And this is not the first time that the nation of Israel have rejected God as their king. In fact, they've turned away from him at every point that they could. Look at verse 8. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they're doing to you. And that's why God will say yes. That's why God will actually hand them over to this terrible thing that they're asking for and give them a king, the kind of king they want. Mind you, God doesn't want to say yes. So from verse 10 to verse 18, which is the main thing in this chapter, God pleads with them not to do this. Okay? The kind of king they're asking for and they're rejecting of God, it won't be good for them. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 9. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will do. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, this is what the king who reigns over you will do. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses. They will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and others to plough his ground and reap his harvest and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your men servants and maidservants and the best of your cattle and donkeys, he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks. And you yourselves will become his slaves. God is warning them. 
don't you see the kind of thing that a godless king will do to you? He won't be generous to you. No, he will take and take and take. The power will go to his head. He'll use everything for himself. And the, the, the worst part of this warning, though, comes in verse 18. Look at verse 18. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, and the Lord will not answer you in that day. See, they are turning their back on God. They're saying, God, we don't want you. At least now, as bad as things are, when Israel cry out to the Lord, he says he'll hear them and forgive them and he rescues them. But there is coming a day if they continue to turn their back on him when he will not listen anymore. This is like that guy at the curry shop pleading with me not to order the six chili curry. It won't be good for you. Look, he could have run out the back as soon as I ordered it and, ah, ha, ha, I'll teach this guy a lesson. And No, he, he actually genuinely was concerned for me. I was just too stubborn to listen. It's what it's like with the nation of Israel. God is genuinely concerned for them. He doesn't want them to turn away from him. They're not interested. Verse 19. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we shall be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. The Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. Then Samuel said to the men of Israel, everyone is to go back to his own town. God gives them exactly what they've asked for. And over the next few weeks, as we read on in 1 Samuel 8, we're going to see how that goes. We're going to meet this king that they've asked for. And we're going to see why it doesn't work out. It ends badly. But for today, I just want us to notice what's happening here in chapter 8. God is warning his people not to reject him as their king because he loves them. He knows what's best for them. Walking away from him will be a disaster. So he's warning them. And it's a warning for us too. God doesn't want us to make the same mistake. In our heart of hearts, we can only serve one king. We can serve God. We can serve Jesus, the king he has appointed. Or we can say no to God and we can serve something else. Either God is your king or God is not your king. He can't be your king and not your king. He's one or the other. And look, that can be hard to tell from the outside, like the nation of Israel here. They're asking for something on the surface that seems good, a king. It was actually what God wanted for them. But in their hearts, they're trying to get rid of God as their king. And look, we can be similar, can't we? We can chase good things, but with bad motives they were actually using to squeeze God out. You can have two people doing exactly the same thing. One person's doing it to please God with God as their king. One person is doing the same thing, but they're using it to push God away. Let me give you an example. 
John prays about his new job and he takes it because he wants to serve God at work. He thinks he'll be able to do this job well, well enough that he can serve the people who are under him. He wants to try and be a fair boss. He wants to honour God in his work. And look, it's not his dream job, but he thinks he can be content with it. And it'll still leave him time to be involved in a small group and to help other people. And he knows work is good and he wants to work with Jesus as his king, so he says yes, he takes the job. It's John. Jim prays about his job, exactly the same job. And he takes it because he wants the extra security that it'll bring him because... Frankly, his prayer life hasn't been that good lately and he he worries too much. And he thinks that if he's financially secure, this will be one less thing that he has to worry about. One less thing to get cranky about. Besides, when, when work is going well, he feels better about himself. Look, look, he knows that your sense of worth should come from your relationship with God, but he's never really felt that. Work is what makes... Jim feel important. And look, it's not his dream job, but it's a stepping stone, and he knows if he puts in the extra hours, he'll be able to move up to something better, and he'll be able to pay off his mortgage quicker, and then he can go on those holidays that help him not to worry and relax him. And look, he might not be able to get to a small group as much, but the doors to this job just seem to open. He can be more involved in church later. Jim, John. Same job, same decision looking in from the outside. But Jim is walking away from God as his king. Mary, she's praying about the bloke who asked her out. She's not sure about it. In her heart of hearts, she wants to serve Jesus. She wants Jesus as number one. She knows that in this relationship she can honour Jesus. So she says yes. She'll give it a go. She goes out with him. Margaret, she prays about the bloke who's asked her out. She feels so lonely anything will be better than what she has now. She knows at this particular point in her life it's not the best thing for her relationship with God, but surely God doesn't want her to feel like this. Anyway, he seems so distant. This seems real. This is the way God made her. These feelings can't be wrong. She needs this. She tries not to think about God. Two people. Same decision on the outside... But what's going on inside is very different. One of them is walking away from God as her king. Now, look, we could come up with lots of scenarios, couldn't we? There are so many things in life that in and of themselves are good things. Work, it's a good thing given to us by God. Relationships, a wonderful thing. Family, hobbies. There are so many things in life that God has given us and they are good, but... We can use them as a replacement for God. 
We can use them to, to push God away, to not think about him, to give us something else to drown things out. God does not want you to do that. He loves you too much. He wants to warn you that will end badly. So it's worth asking yourself the question, who or what are you living for? Are you living for your dream home? Are you living for a bigger bank balance? Are you living for the next set of blood test results? Are you living for that relationship you so desperately want? Are you living for something that gives you just great pleasure and it's going really well? Or in the midst of all those things, the good and the bad, are you living for God? Are you depending on him? Are you trying to serve him? In your heart, you know what you're living for. If you're living for other things, today's passage is like a warning light on the dashboard. It's going to end badly. Don't ignore it. It doesn't matter how far from God you've wandered. Come back to him. Notice though, he's not forcing you back. He's going to let you have those things if that's what you really want. But he's warning you, don't chase those things instead of him. It's empty. Don't replace God with anything else. Why? Why does he warn you about this? Why does he want you to live with him as, his, as your king? Because that is the best way to live. Paul says in Philippians, I consider everything else, that's all the other great stuff in life that he could have chased, I consider everything else a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. Whatever we say no to, whatever we give up to follow Jesus as our king, it'll be worth it. Jesus says, I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's like the things that we've been seeing in 1 John recently. With Jesus as your king, there's eternal life. There's forgiveness. There's assurance. You're a child of God. Why would you walk away from all that? And that's why the John series ended where it did last week. Really exactly the same warning with today's passage. Dear children, keep yourself from idols. We're hearing the same warning this morning. Make sure that Jesus is number one. Don't go looking for other things. It ends badly. Let's pray. Father God, we confess that like the nation of Israel did, we can actually look to other things and they seem attractive and they seem like they'll bring pleasure. Like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, they offer so much. And yet we know that often these things are saying no to you. 
And Father, we confess that like the nation of Israel, sometimes it's when things are going really bad that we look for other things. But Father, whether life is good or whether life is hard, please help us to trust you. Please help us to, from our heart, live with Jesus as our king. Father, we're all a mix of mixed motives. In our best moments where we're doing something to serve you and to honour Jesus or to help another person, so often there's selfishness in there. And even if in our worst moments when we're doing something disobedient, in our hearts your spirit has put a desire there that we actually do want to obey you. So, Father, we bring all of that to you. We thank you that in Jesus there's forgiveness for all of our mistakes. But please purify us and change, change our heart that we would live with Jesus as our King. Father, please help us to be attracted to him and not to anything else. Amen.